Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Like I said, we are finishing up our summer series today that we've simply been calling Questions as we've been looking at six of the most prominent questions that come up in spiritual conversations. And today we come to the question that really underlies all the rest, the question at which you, you have to eventually grapple with because it makes sense of, it grounds all the others all the others at least from a Christian perspective. It's what distinguishes us from the rest of the world and is what gives us what distinguishes us most, what leads us into, what shows us, displays for us what distinguishes us most, that we have in fact the Son of God. The Son of God who is sent by the Father to pay a penalty we could not pay for ourselves to, to die a death we should have died ourselves and then rise again to offer a life we cannot hope in for ourselves apart from him. And yet, the Christian faith does not say you can just go after Jesus however you want. You must come to God's Son through God's Word. And so today we get to that point in our series that, that, again, will ground all the rest as we ask this final question, why should I trust the Bible? Why should I trust God's Word in which I get to know God's Son? We're going to dive into that in a moment, but before we do, just join me again as we pray. Help me, Father, as we do consider this, this, the, this question that is of the utmost importance to our faith. Father, I pray that even as we do, you would make your word known to us. That even as we consider it and, and, and come, approach to consider it, that you would do something more profound than we can achieve just by our considerations. That you would make it known to us that this is in fact your word and not just make that known to us that we might then listen up, but that you in fact would speak in a way to break through our ears by which we cannot hear without you our eyes by which we cannot see without you. May you do it for the honor and the glory of your son Jesus in whose name we pray. Well, in April 2007, the cover story of Time Magazine praised the Bible as the most influential book ever written. April 2007, the cover story of Time Magazine. Can you believe it? Noting that the Bible is both the, the best-selling book of all time and the best-selling book of the year, every year. That it has sold in total upwards of six billion copies, been translated now, at least in part, into more than 3,000 languages, and forms the foundation of Western civilization. 
So again, Time Magazine lauded it as the most influential book ever written. That 168,000 copies are sold, given away, or otherwise distributed every day. In the U.S. alone, And that even here in our secularized society, two-thirds of Americans still say, according to to Gallup polls, two-thirds of Americans still say that they're curious to know more about what the Bible says. Three out of ten would even go as far as saying it's a strong desire of theirs. Perhaps because six out of ten would come and admit, freely admit, that the message of the Bible has in some way transformed their life. All of which just proves the point that simply put, the Bible is the most successful literary creation in human history. Yet the conclusion of that cover story in Time Magazine, that because of its success as a literary creation and influence as such on Western civilization, the conclusion of that Time Magazine article that the Bible ought to therefore be reintroduced as literature into public education, that's what the article was actually about. The conclusion of that cover story, however, is a far cry from what the Bible would demand itself. Isn't it? Because the Bible doesn't just present itself as a book that inspires, but as a book that has been inspired from none other than God himself. And that as the inspired word of God, it is not only to be read as some academic exercise, but read and believed and obeyed as God's sacred text. Just listen to what the Apostle Paul says in this letter to his young protege named Timothy. After putting his thumb on a cultural shift where people were becoming more lovers of self than lovers of God, that's what happens before this, that's what Paul is talking about before this. After putting his thumb on this cultural shift, which could just as much describe our own day and age, Paul says this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. He says, but as for you, Timothy, while others are going their own way, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture, Paul says, is God-breathed, is breathed out by God, Paul says, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And Paul goes on in in the next chapter to say, do this one thing, therefore, stick to this one thing, therefore, preach the word. Preach the word, because it's not just for you, Timothy. Preach the word. Do the work of an evangelist, proclaiming the gospel through your preaching of the word. 
But just notice, this is quite a different claim, isn't it? Not just that the Bible is inspirational, but that the Bible is inspired. Remember the sacred writings, Paul says, and how you became acquainted with them since childhood, and how they are able to make you wise for salvation. Why? Because verse 16, and this is where I want to land for a second, because verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Breathed out by God. So not just inspired, but in fact expired. Not just breathed into, but breathed out. Because the picture painted in the Bible isn't that God showed up to this dead book and started doing CPR on it. He didn't start doing these, these rescue breaths and 30 compressions to get this thing working the way it was supposed to. It's that God opened his mouth and what came out was the Bible. He opened his mouth to speak and what came out was the Bible. Not to discount the human but to give you a picture of how we're supposed to understand the relationship of God's word to God. A relationship that's not very different from understanding the relationship between God's son and God. That God opens his mouth and who shows up on the scene but Jesus. That God opens his mouth and what you get is a Bible that's all about Jesus. That the Bible is breathed out by God. Which is why in the statement of what we believe as a church, we haven't just said this book is worth reading or, or somewhat beneficial for those who have time for it, or even just worth reintroducing into public education but rather that it is the very bedrock of our lives as believers and of who we are as a community of faith. This is how we put it, for those of you who don't remember. That while written by many different hands in many different places and at many different times, the Bible is nonetheless the word of God inspired in its entirety and, every, and at every point by the Spirit of God and is therefore without error. That through the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, the Bible tells the one true story of God saving God's people, ultimately through the work of God's Son. And that our hope of knowing God is to therefore know him through the person and work of his Son, through the written words of the Bible. That as the final authority in, in all matters of life and faith, we therefore trust all that it says to us and strive to fulfill all that it asks of us. In short, that the Bible isn't just an inspiring word about God, but again, rather, it is the inspired word of God and is therefore, by implication, Inerrant in its content, infallible in its intent, 
and worthy of assent. That it's inerrant in its content, which means it doesn't get anything wrong, right? Because God doesn't get stuff wrong. And he's able to overcome the shortcomings of our own selves, the, the, the men and, and, and perhaps others who, who, who wrote the Bible. He's, over, he's able to overcome those shortcomings to produce something without error. That it is inerrant in content. But that it is also infallible in its intent. Because the Bible isn't just like a phone book that somebody went through and edited really well. It's not just without error in what it says. It goes beyond itself and is unable to fail in its purposes. Which therefore lastly means that it is worthy of assent. That God broke into human history, not only in the sending of his son, but so decided that he would be gracious enough to leave us a living witness and gave us the Bible. So we know as creatures how to stand before him, walk before him, live before him. He gave us the Bible. You get that? Inerrant in its content, infallible in its intent, and worthy of assent. But recognizing what the Bible says about itself, even in this central passage to, to, to what we understand about the Bible that comes from the very end of Paul's life, these are the last words that he would speak. Even understanding it here doesn't really answer the question of why I should trust the Bible, does it? At least not in a way that maybe would satisfy the outsider. Because that's just like getting ready for a, a blind date and, and basing all your opinion about the other person on what they say about themselves. I never did any internet dating, but this is sort of the sum of what I think of it. No offense to any of you who found the love of your life through it. You would agree, though, I'm sure, if you did, that you could not base your understanding of the other person solely on what they said about themselves. Sure, there's a place for that. That's important. But you don't just go on a blind date, at least not many of us go on a blind date, only with the words of the person you're about to be dating. You check up on it, right? You circle around, you do due diligence, you find out more, you ask the friends who are setting you up or, or something of that nature. Similar with the Bible. To answer the question of why I should trust the Bible, you actually have to, and are invited to, by the Bible itself, to fact-check those claims outside the Bible. And to, as much as possible, take what the Bible says about itself and see if it holds water. Which is what I want to sort of do right now. I just want to fact-check and show how you would go about fact-checking this claim that the Bible is the very word of God it claims to be. 
And let me just suggest that there's at least three ways in which the Bible does hold water. It proves itself to hold water. Three ways in which the Bible holds water and invites those who encounter it to trust it. Three ways. First, beginning with the fact that the Bible holds water in being textually consistent. Now, I know these are going to be some big words. You asked a big question. What are we going to do? You've got to get into a little bit of this, right? The Bible holds water in the fact that it is textually consistent. And in fact, that it is the most textually consistent book in human history. This is a pretty profound fact. The, most, the Bible is that the Bible is the most textually consistent book in human history. Which means that even though it's been thousands of years since the books of the Bible were written, you can trust that those books, as we have them today, are basically the books as they were originally published and made part of the Bible so long ago. And that's a big deal because many people blow the Bible off because of the time gap between when those books were written and where we are today. And yet, if you actually look into the Bible, you can't do that. You can't blow the Bible off because it's, again, textually consistent. That these words are, in fact, the very words that were have been handed down through the ages and have finally been faithfully translated into English today or into whatever of those 3,000 languages. But that's a pretty big claim, right? That's a pretty big claim that the Bible is, in fact, the most textually consistent book in human history. Yet, that's what all the best critical data suggests, no matter what side of the dividing line you find yourself on. Because you can compare what's called the, the manuscript evidence for the Bible with just about any other piece of ancient literature, and what you find when you do is that the Bible not only lives up to textual standards, what you find is that the Bible sets the standard. In fact, that it's the gold standard for textual consistency, and nothing else even comes close to comparing. So take something like the writings of Plato. You know Plato, right? I grew up on Plato later in life. Pretty typical reading, right, for ancient history, if you're getting into that. He wrote, uh, he wrote in the fourth century, for, uh, before, uh, four centuries before Christ. Uh, today, we know of seven extant copies of his work, the earliest of which is from the year 900 A.D. 900 A.D., nearly 1,200. 100 years later, for someone like Caesar, who also wrote some books back then, the stats are pretty similar. He wrote in the century before Jesus, we have about 10 copies of his work, and the earliest of which is nearly 1,000 years after the fact. Aristotle's the same. About 1,400 years between when he wrote and the earliest copy we have. 49 manuscripts that we know of. And the list goes on with one historical figure after another, one historical author after another. The one piece of literature that stands out from the rest is Homer's Iliad. 
written about 900 B.C. We actually have a copy from, from just 500 years later, 400 B.C. And, and after that, over 600 other copies. And it's pretty good, right? That's pretty good. That's finally getting to a place where you can actually compare the copies and determine Determined by the abundance of textual evidence, you can actually determine the textual consistency. So you could put them side by side and compare notes. And you can't even do that with most of the others because there's not enough textual evidence. But, but with the Iliad, you can. What you find is that the Iliad is something like 95% consistent through those 600 plus manuscripts. That's remarkable, right? 95%. I was a B student in high school, 95% I would have felt satisfied with. But it's pretty good. And yet, it doesn't even compare with the New Testament. If we were just going to take that as a corpus of literature written in Greek, it's its own language, right? If we were just going to take that, it doesn't even compare because hand-copied through the years, the New Testament scores a 99.5. 99.5. That's an A. Plus. And because of the amount of textual evidence, over 5,000 manuscripts, nearing 6,000 today, you can actually sit down and figure out the other 0.5%. And it's all stuff that's relatively unimportant. Putting a comma here or there. Spelling Mr. Out or using the MR abbreviation. You were allowed to do that as a scribe in, in the ancient Near East. 99.5% consistency. So that while... This doesn't yet suggest, and realize this, this doesn't yet suggest that we should trust what the Bible says. It does suggest that we should trust that this is what the Bible says. we got to go a little further to actually cross-check the content. But at least we know what the content is. And everybody who's looked into the matter agrees on it. Bart Ehrman, a, a, a professor of religious studies at um, the University of North Carolina down in, um, down in North Carolina. <laughs> Bart Ehrman, who in his studies of textual criticism, the science that sort of pieces together that other 0.5%, Bart Ehrman, who walked away from God, mostly he explains in another book, because he could not cope with the problem of evil, the problem of suffering and pain. Bart Ehrman says, as a textual critic on the other side of the divide, when he argues these points, he'll debate for, for hours on end that, that there are over 400,000 variants of the, in, the, in those six thousand manuscripts we have but when push comes to shove and somebody finally asks him so what do you believe the original new testament said even he will admit that we basically have what the original new testament said so at least we should be able to honestly admit that the very least we know what the bible says 
What, however, if we want to push beyond that, what, however, how do you cross-check in such a way that gets you into the content? Like I said, the, the, the Bible being textually consistent can only take us so far. It suggests that we ought to trust that these are the words of the Bible. What, though, would take us that next step and suggest we ought to start trusting what those words actually say? And here, let me point you to the fact that the Bible isn't just textually consistent, but has in a great number of places been historically confirmed. And I'm focusing on in the historical part. There's other aspects of this as well that you can in fact argue that moral philosophy has in fact confirmed the Bible's morality. That, that you can look at the, the, the prophetic um, the prophetic utterances of the Bible and by their own fulfillment, another aspect of historical um, confirmation. You can, you can walk through those. I just want to talk, though, broadly about this idea, historical confirmation, that the Bible has, in fact, in great number of places, been historically confirmed. Textually consistent, now historically confirmed. Whether that's by a comparison with other writers of ancient history or through comparative literature studies or by archaeological discoveries. That where the Bible is verifiable, and that's the question, what is verifiable in the Bible? That where the Bible is verifiable, especially in the gritty details of its historical claims, that the Bible, on the one hand, has yet to be conclusively called into question... And in fact, on the other hand, very much the opposite, its presentation of history has time and again been able to stand the test of critical scrutiny. It has been verified. Now, to be fair, that's not always been because apparent contradictions between parallel texts have been easy to harmonize. Sometimes they're not easy or because certain historical events have always turned out to be just what they would have been expected to be for some specific text. Sometimes they're not. The very Bible we hold so dear is often what evades our simplistic solutions. Yet the Bible has proved incredibly adept over the last 200 years of critical scholarship at taking the brunt of critical analysis and still coming out the other end relatively unharmed. The Bible is incredibly elastic. It evades the critic's aim. To the point that someone like Nelson Gluick, who was a, 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 a if not the, uh, he was A, if not the leading voice in Israeli archaeology up until his death. Someone like Nelson Gluick could say about his own field of study, about archaeology uh, up until that point, that no archaeological discovery has ever con controverted a biblical reference. But scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements made in the Bible. This is a guy that spent his entire life in Israel digging up Israel. He's the guy who led the way 
and yet would be able to say that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a statement made in the Bible. Like the discovery in 2004 of the Pool of Siloam. It didn't contradict, it confirmed to which the Pool of Siloam, to which Jesus refers in John chapter 9. When, and they found it when the, the, the steps of this ritual bath were found by Israeli sewage workers trying to fix a plumbing problem. Contradicting, it's confirming, or, or like the discovery of what is believed to be Peter's house in the village of Capernaum, where under a, a modern church was found an ancient church on top of another ancient church built around a house that was as early as the first century used as a house of worship because of the ancient graffiti on the walls that's all about Jesus and so has convinced many biblical archaeologists who are, who are experts in the field that this must be Peter's house because we don't have a lot of other options for what this would be. Or lastly, like the discovery of what's been called the Pilate Stone that references Pilate's rule as the Roman prefect. That's the word used in, in the Gospels on occasion. That's the word Pilate apparently, uh, um, apparently liked himself, not the word that was used by Caesar. That this Pilate Stone that references his rule as the Roman prefect in Judea was dated to the time of Jesus' crucifixion. It doesn't contradict the story. It actually, in fact, confirms it. Discoveries that, again, suggest that the gritty details of the Bible's historical claims are rooted in the grit of history. That its kings existed. That its battles happened. And its accounts happened in history. And the evidence is only more convincing when you turn from archaeology to comparative literary studies or to co comparison with other writers of ancient history. Because here we find that the authors of the Bible and of the historical sections of the New Testament in particular, which are where we can draw the most comparisons, that here we find that the authors of the Gospels were not creators of legends, as they're so often portrayed, but rather preservers of memories and traditions that long predate the publishing of their accounts. An example of this is the names in the Gospels. A major study has just been um, concluded compiling all of the known names of ancient Palestine and dating them to certain periods within that. And interestingly, for the Gospels that almost everybody would agree were written later after the fact, right? Whether 20, 30, 40 years after the fact, the Gospel of John, maybe even up to 70 years after the fact, if it was in fact published way late in the Gospel of John's life, that 
where everybody acknowledges these were written in a different time period, most likely everybody agreeing they were written in a different location, and yet the names in the Gospels are not ones that would have been made up by those who didn't know the history. They, in fact, match, they correspond to almost precisely to the exact data that we have now for that period. So we know that Simon is one of, if not the most popular name in ancient Palestine in the years that Jesus would have ministered there. Not so 50 years later, definitely not so outside of Palestine. And yet the gospel writers who either wrote, like Mark in Rome or John in Ephesus, Luke as he was traveling around the Mediterranean world, and yet the gospel authors intuitively know exactly what names to assign to what characters. And more than that, they know which names need to be clarified because those were the popular names at the time. They didn't have this database, but they know that every Simon needs a second name because you can't tell one Simon apart from the others. Where would they would have picked that up along the way? except that in their Gospels they were in fact preserving both the memories and traditions of a time gone by. It's the same for the geographic references. We just take John, for instance, whose Gospel has been blown off as a source for knowledge about the historical Jesus for nearly 200 years now. The Gospel of John has not been a part of the conversation. Well, it's just in the last 20 years that the scholarly, scholarly consensus, the scholarly consensus has begun to shift as scholars have recognized now that the Gospel of John actually contains more historically significant data, more historically verifiable data, theological as it is, more historically verifiable data than all other three canonical Gospels put together. This is part of my doctoral dissertation. I can get very excited about this. That John all of a sudden is back on the table. Because it's not as if it's removed from history. It in fact preserves a, 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 a less presented view of history than its synoptic counterparts. Not that the synoptics are wrong. They write of Jesus, for instance, taking one trip to Jerusalem. Why? Because his whole life was as if one trip was headed towards the cross. But John is the one that fills in the details that says, by the way, it wasn't just one. He was there on multiple occasions doing multiple things. And I can tell you what. So that, that's why John uses such sensory language, writes such vivid accounts, because he seems to have been there. It's the only one who makes the actual claim to have been there. And I know this from my own research, both in the UK and continental Europe, such that I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say this, that there is less room in biblical studies today to reject this or that book of the Bible based on its historically verifiable claims than ever before. 
That scholarship is coming to the uncomfortable conclusion that it must ultimately accept or reject a book based on its non-verifiable, often theological claims, which is an uncomfortable position to be in if you claim to be a historian. Even like we saw last week when it comes to something like the resurrection, which many want to reject outright because it's part of the miraculous, just because it is so. Yet even this isn't so easily dismissed anymore. No, because of where the Bible has been historically confirmed, we're more and more forced to grapple with the other parts of where it hasn't been. And really, with the other parts where it can't be, we're forced to grapple with its theology. But why trust any further? Why even bother? Why not just admit that it's interesting that some of the Bible's claims, even its most important claims, claim of the resurrection, have been historically confirmed to some degree? And that almost all of the Bible's teaching has been textually consistent through its history. Why not stop there? Well, let me suggest that you should bother on because the Bible is also personally convincing. It's personally convincing. Textually consistent, historically confirmed, now personally convincing. Which just notice for, for, for a minute that this is my last point, it's not my first. In other sects and religions, they want you to acknowledge this on the front end as the bedrock of their holy scriptures. Read it as if it is holy scripture. Christianity, yes, but not solely. Yes, that if God speaks, God's going to wake up who he's speaking to. That God not only has the power to, to inspire this book, but to illumine it for those who come seeking him. He's God. He's got the prerogative. Who am I to say different? But notice, it is not the only thing. It is not the only underlying factor to why you should take it as trustworthy. And yet it is part of it. Yet it is part of it. And I want to talk about that now, that the Bible is, lastly, personally convincing. By which I mean that reading the story of the Bible, at some point we find ourselves, so many throughout its history have found themselves struck by the fact that they were reading their story as well that we must remove our shoes at some point and recognize that we stand on holy ground. Because here is a book that will tell you your darkest secrets. Here is a book that will show you your highest hopes. Here is a book that shines light on all of life even as it has the power to call you into another life altogether. Because here is a book that 
explains our world better than any other, anything else on offer, any of the man-made religions of our world or the man-made texts that go with them, whatever, whatever cave you walked into or woods you went into and came out with your holy book that was gonna serve you best of all, here is a book that talks not of the, the, the 40 or so authors that God used to, to produce it over some 1,500 years, but talks of the one God who wrote his one story in it. Shows both the why, both the why there is a, a, a better way, and the why our heart of hearts knows it how we recognize who, who doesn't that the world around us is not the way it's supposed to be. The Bible explains all that, of where that came from, and then explains the hope of ever getting back. That it's not about us like all the other religions of the world seem to think because that's what we do when we make up our own way to God. It's about God doing what we can't do for ourselves. Because here is a book that tells us of humanity turning away from God and how we've all turned away since and don't have the power to turn back. That, that, that heart, the heart of the problem is the, the problem of the human heart. And that our only hope, even if we fail to recognize it, is if the God we so utterly turned to flee from would ultimately turn to pursue. That here is a book, 1,500 years in the making, over 40 different authors telling the single story of a God who does just that. And does so ultimately through a man named Jesus who steps into history to tell a story none of the religions of the world ever would have dared to tell because it's a story ultimately about him. A story that a guy named Frederick Beekner called the fairy tale of the gospel, except which of, with, of course, one crucial difference that this fairy tale claims to be true. And funny, isn't it? that this is where Paul actually goes with Timothy? This is what he's saying to Timothy. Saying, yes, this is the inspired word of God, but it is the sacred writings that are able, powerful, powerful to save you and to do so through faith in Jesus Christ. That these, these are the, the scriptures that, that, that can make a man competent and complete, equipped for every good work, and for the greatest work of coming back to the God who's paved the way. Because in the end, more than just textually consistent, more than just historically confirmed, these are in the end 
personally convincing as they contextualize your story in God's story. Let me just leave you then, having considered these six questions, being at the end of this series over these six weeks, let me just leave you with a single thought. And it's a thought Paul is going to pick up on next week, hash out a bit. It's a thought that, well, we think through some of the personal implications for engaging those who ask the questions. Here it is. Here's the thought. That as you engage the questions, and even more as you engage those asking the questions, even as you become those asking the questions, remember that the goal in the end is not to answer the questions yourself, but to lead people to the answer, Jesus Christ. To get them to Jesus, which you do as you proclaim it, but also get them into God's Word. Stories told of the general secretary for the United Bible Society of Zimbabwe going to a remote village where he was trying to, trying to evangelize prisoners workers, uh, the lowly who he found there. And to do so by selling them Bibles. He didn't have money to just give them away. So, you know, to get a little of buy-in from them, he would sell them pretty cheap at cost, maybe below cost at times. But he encountered one man who refused to take one, refused to buy it, to which this general secretary of the United Bible Societies of Zimbabwe then offered to give it to him for free if he would read it. The man, though, very quickly admitted that he wouldn't ever read that Bible, that all he would use it for was for rolling up his cigarettes. To which, thinking on his feet, the man, the general secretary of the United Bible Societies of Zimbabwe, said, I'll give you the Bible if before you roll up a page, you read it. The general secretary left and went his way and ministered throughout the country, but returned to that small village a few years later. And at the end of his talk, presenting again the gospel of Jesus Christ, a man in the back stood up and said, you don't remember me, but I remember you. And I'll tell you, everybody who's sitting there, that this man tried to sell me a Bible and I wouldn't give. And eventually gave me a Bible, even though I told him all I was going to use it for was to roll up my cigarettes. But he said to me, before I roll up the cigarette, to read the page. And I did. And I smoked my way through Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But when I got to John 3.16, God grabbed a hold of my life. And I've never been the same since. 
Some people, it's not going to take showing them the reasons why. They'll get to the personally convincing word of God before you ever have to get to the reasons. Others, it's going to be worth walking through why they should trust at least what the Bible says and trust enough of it because it's historically confirmed. And perhaps trust more even still. Either way, though, as you're trying to engage the questions of life and engage those asking the questions, remember the goal is to get people to Jesus by getting them into the Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that it is so. I thank you that even as a body next week, as Paul comes to preach to us, we get to dive even more heavily than we've been these last weeks into that word that, that we, after that, we'll, we'll get to back to our regular diet of, of being in Ezra and Nehemiah, right where we should be. And I pray that as we're in your word, you would show us your son and that you would develop in us the ability to walk others into your word as well. Illumine our hearts and illumine theirs that through your word we might see your son in whose name we pray. For joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K I S H Bible.org.